1: Welcome to Meeting of Minds with Jerry Boyer. I'm talking today with my friend Steve Forbes. Steve is the uh, uh, the publisher of uh, Forbes magazine. Actually, Rich Carlgaard is the publisher of Forbes magazine. You're CEO and editor-in-chief. Is that right,
2: Steve? Chairman and editor-in-chief, uh, but my brilliance does not match that of Rich Carlgaard's.
1: Well, Rich, he certainly has his gifts and his talents, but so do you. I, he, Has Rich won the Crystal Owl three times? Well, didn't enter the contest, so uh, I had an advantage. <laughs> he stayed out because he didn't <laughs> want to overshadow you. And you've written a number of books, New Birth to Freedom. Uh, we're talking today about money, the destruction of the dollar, um, and the, how the destruction of the dollar threatens the global economy and what we can do about it. I just like to think of it as the name, money, Steve Forbes, money. Um, and Steve, I've been listening to um, What's Ahead, which is your new podcast um, commentary and really enjoying it to me it's a must go to every day um, short commentaries two to three minutes all, you know almost every day thank you, um, thank you. and lately uh, you've been talking about oil prices maybe uh, going over a hundred and inflation and how the fed doesn't understand inflation can you kind of unpack that for us we have more than two minutes so you can just you know let the horses run <laughs> go for it tell us what you're seeing there
2: please Well, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, doesn't understand inflation. Uh, The classical definition of inflation is when you lower the value of a currency, in this case, the dollar, which causes all sorts of problems. And uh, then that has to be distinguished, Jerry, from changes in prices as a result of supply and demand. Right now, we're seeing a lot of price changes because of the disruptions of the pandemic. Supply chains were severely disrupted. Uh, the way things were done was disrupted. Uh, for example, during the pandemic, a lot of people decided to do uh, repairs around the house and maybe expand. So the demand for lumber went up. But with the pandemic, uh, lumber production was going down. So you had a huge surge of, uh, in lumber prices. That was a change in the value of lumber. It had nothing to do with the value of the dollar. So uh, we have to uh, really we'll talk about unpacking. You have to make distinctions between normal price changes or price changes as a result of extraordinary uh, events like the pandemic or uh, many, many times in the past, of financial panic or natural disasters. But uh, what I think we're seeing unfolding here is when the, the Fed is right, that some of these price changes will sort themselves out. But what the Fed doesn't understand is that when you lower the value of a currency, you change the price signals in the marketplace. Instead of getting a dozen eggs for uh, $3, you're only going to get 10, and you don't know why. And so it's like a virus in the computer. It corrupts the information. Hmm. And this usually comes about when a central bank like the Fed prints too much money. It's compounded here, Jerry, by a strange belief the Federal Reserve has, and it's shared by most central bankers, and that is inflation and this is where they don't understand the difference between price changes from supply and demand and price changes from the change in the value of the currency, the Fed believes that prosperity, good times, causes inflation, that when the economy's doing well, that bumps up prices, and therefore, since they regard the economy not as a collection of individuals interacting with each other, but as a machine, uh, they therefore have to cool things off. Mm. Otherwise, the economy will overheat. And so they try to create unemployment. They believe uh, this is what they call the Phillips curve. It's not a baseball pitch. They believe that there's a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. If you want low unemployment, you have to have higher inflation. If you want lower inflation, you have to have higher unemployment. Now, history and experience and a number of Nobel Prize-winning economists have all shown this is absolute nonsense. But nonetheless, the Fed worships at the shrine of the Phillips curve. So when you look at price changes, you have to ask, Uh, Like, uh, let's say the price of corn goes up. Is the price going up because the value of corn is going up? There was a drought or something, or suddenly everyone wants to eat corn? Or is it because the dollar value is changing, the dollar gets weaker? Hmm. We saw back in the 1970s, oil go from $3 a barrel to a high of almost $40 a barrel. And because that was corrupting market information, a lot of people thought, gosh, we must be running out of oil. Uh, There must be a shortage of oil. And so we better ramp up production, try to find substitutes for it. And uh, then in the early 80s. Uh, so it was the it money
1: illusion. Leading us to to a whole generation of movies like Soyant Green and a whole generation of the renewal of a Malthusian philosophy were running out of resources when, in fact, it was a corruption in the information system. The unit of exchange, the numeraire, was distorted in value, and so we took the wrong
2: lesson from those spikes in oil prices. That's right. It wasn't so much that oil got more valuable or copper suddenly became more valuable— it was that the dollar became less valuable. The dollar became weaker. And in the early 80s, when inflation was crushed by Volcker, Paul Volcker, then the head of the Federal Reserve, our central bank, guess what happened to the price of oil? It crashed, right. went down to about $10 a barrel, finally settled in in a few years at $20 to $25 a barrel. But the problem, Jerry, is when you have these long periods of price distortions, it uh, leads to a bad investment, it uh, misdirects capital. And we saw that in the early 2000s, when again, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department decided to let the dollar weaken, just a little bit to goose things up, you know, Phillips curve thinking, yes. and the idea that if we cheapen the dollar, that'll increase our exports. <laughs> so, they, uh, so they let the dollar weaken. And guess what happened? Oil went up from $20, $25, reaching a peak of 100 or so, even more. You saw the housing uh, bubble, which led to a catastrophe in 2008-2009. So when these things happen, uh, it has bad results. Back in the 1980s, we think of Texas today as a nice, prosperous place, even if it is too hot right now. But uh, back in the 1980s, it was a depressed part of the nation. They had a real depression in the aftermath of the energy crash. So these things have malignant consequences. And Mellon Bank
1: here in Pittsburgh was over-invested in Houston real estate. And so there was a wave of bankruptcies that just swept across the country. And I remember there was a lot of unrest here, partly over that. So this stuff... This isn't just economics. This is social and it's pervasive and it gets downstream and it like gets into every little nook and cranny of the economy and the society in distortive ways. And maybe one person in a thousand, and I'm being generous, understands that, you know, why do we have this Arab Spring thing going on? Oh, well, you know, grain prices, tortilla riots in some places, wheat, you know, prices in other places that these monetary distortions they, they, they wreck many more things than just what we think of as traditionally economic
2: things. Well, that's right. And this gets to, uh, we think of inflation as you uh, touched on economics, but as you uh, well know, as you just said, it's more than economics. Economics, by the way, is people interacting with each other. But, uh, so it's not some strange beast out there, but uh, markets are people. But also it affects social relations. You know, if money is stable, we can do uh, transactions with people we don't even know, we may not even see. And this wonderful uh, way of uh, people coming together with no central direction, uh, what we now call supply chains, uh, producing all these products and services from all over the world, making these great innovations. And uh, money is, uh, gets to social trust. Uh, we can uh, trust other people, not because we know them, but because what we, we are able to trade with each other. And when you trade with people, uh, in the marketplace, what are you trying to do? You're trying to sell you something. So, uh, uh, I may look at uh, Jerry and say, gee, I wish Jerry'd save, shave that beard, but I want to sell him some life insurance. So I'm going to be nice and find out how I can persuade him to part with his resources to buy the life insurance policy I'm selling. And so without you knowing it, you may not love your neighbor, but you want to sell to your neighbor. It breaks down barriers between people. Hmm. And it makes, uh, contrary to what the Marxists say and these new socialists would believe, it actually increases and enhances humanity because you're cooperating and you don't even realize how it is happening. It's it's extraordinary. I think I learned this from you. Tell me if, if I didn't in the book
1: Money or maybe your documentary about money. You know, we all know about Kristallnacht. Right, this populist yes. manufactured populist uprising of Nazis, totally you know, in Jewish right in Jewish neighborhoods. But you know who stops and asks why windows? Why break windows? I mean, they could have it could have you know broken doors mainly. They could have mainly burned down things. They, there's lots of ways to express anger. Why were they breaking store windows? Because they were demonizing speculators and and middlemen for hiking prices, when in fact, it was their own monetary authorities and their own debasement of currency that led to these price hikes. So, I mean, something as noxious as anti-Semitism in Germany has this breakdown in trust associated with the lie that fiat currencies
2: tell about what's going on in the world. That's right. And it started to be really fueled. Sadly, anti-Semitism is a long tra- trait in uh, in Western society. But it, it took a especially ugly and malignant turn after World War One, when uh, Germany thought it was winning the war right to the end and uh, therefore uh, was stunned when they ended up losing the war. They thought they got an unfair treaty. And so uh, they blamed the November criminals and Jews and other uh, conspirators of uh, the mighty uh, good German soldier in the back, Hitler. Right, right. That was the theme of Hitler from the very beginning of his malignant career. And uh, then with the inflation, one of the things about uh, hyperinflation is, as Keynes said, he got some things right, as Keynes said, it goes against all the productive, positive laws of economics and turns them upside down so that it's the speculator who uh, gets rich, Well, the hard worker, the person trying to produce products and services for the marketplace, who ends up getting damaged and wiped out. The people who played by the rules got hurt the most. Hmm. And so it uh, turns societal trust again, corrodes it, corrupts it, And uh, so uh, thankfully, today, we're nowhere near those terrible conditions that we uh, saw in Germany in the early 20s, or even what we experienced in the 1970s, a bad decade economically. And for America's morale, we thought we were in a nation in decline. But uh, the thing about inflation, Jerry, is it doesn't go in a straight direction. It, It comes. It's like a virus. It comes, flares and then recedes and then comes back even worse. That's what happened in the 70s. We had three or four rounds of inflation, each worse than the last before it was finally uh, killed by Volcker in the early 1980s. Hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, bump up in prices we're seeing now uh, after a few months recedes again. Yeah. But the Federal Reserve, since they don't understand inflation, since they're gonna cre- undermine the value of the dollar, uh, We're going to see it come back again. And people are not going to understand it because the Fed has told them what you're experiencing now is just uh, transitory. Yeah, transitory uh, because of the pandemic, COVID-19. But By golly, it'll sort itself out and uh, we'll be on our way to uh, eternal happiness.
1: Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. well i'm i'm glad we're talking about now now right because what i find is that the the people who are on guard against inflation like a lot of our friends in the austrian economics movement tend also to be somewhat given to false positives and to running scenario of hyperinflation um, without, and, and again, false positives of that. So I, as I look out there at the discussion, I hear people talking about hyperinflation. I hear people talking about, this is it, right? This is the big one, like Stanford and like, Sun. This is the big one, Elizabeth. Um, and, I, and then I hear other people basically saying, look, it's fine, everything's fine. Um, we, don't, we don't really have inflationary risk. All those people who've been predicting hyperinflation before were wrong. Therefore, we can write off inflation risks in general. And what I'm hearing from you is a more moderate approach, which is um, a, I, an elevated risk of elevated inflation, not hyperinflation, but not the sanguine. Oh, we, inflation's a thing of the past. We're not going to get it anymore. Look at all the times we didn't get it in the past decade. Do I have have, have I got the Steve Forbes position right on this?
2: Yeah. Uh- Hyperinflation, thankfully, even in the 70s, where we had a really bad uh, rounds of inflation, it wasn't hyperinflation, you know, prices increasing 40-50% a month, as you see uh, in Latin America, Argentina and Lebanon and some other places today. But it can be uh, very, very destructive. So the fact you have a mild form of the disease, you have a very serious disease, and it has, can have some uh, very uh, destructive political consequences. Mm. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of people say don't worry about the inflation is they looked at what happened after 2008, 2009, when the Federal Reserve that vastly, enormously increased its balance sheet, right. increased the money supply greater than it did in the 1970s. So people are looking at those numbers saying, hmm, yeah, well, here, here, we've seen this movie before. But what actually happened was a one-time historical event. And that is leading up to 2008, banks had been leveraging, adding more debt, and uh, not having the kind of reserves that you, a bank normally would have in the old days. They thought with technology and their sophisticated instruments, uh, they didn't need those uh, kinds of uh, cushions anymore. So after 2008, the regulators uh, pounded the banks and the banks were hiring more compliance officers than loan officers. And so they're spending years replenishing and restrengthening their balance sheets. Hmm. And uh, so the reserves, these massive amounts of reserves, bank reserves created, in effect, were put in the deep freeze because the Fed for the first time was paying interest on those reserves. Now, reserves are the excess money that the banks park at the Fed each night. Uh, if they if they have no need for them they're not lending them out or something but uh so the reserves increased enormously, but they were r- repairing the damage done before uh, two thousand and eight. Well, that period is well over, mm. even what they call Basel three if you want to uh, it's no not 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 something you put on uh, a pizza or something Basel uh it's, it's coming out of Switzerland with the world central bankers. Uh, came up with and regulators came up with uh, what they thought were international conditions for bank capital. Uh, I think it's a Hmm. wasted exercise. But anyway, they did it. But anyway, Basel III is over. The banks are in tip top shape in terms of capital. And uh, so So it's not the it's not the stuff you put on pizza. uh, No. but but they're uh, both they're both kind of a pesto, though. Um, they're, they're, I I'd take the pizza <laughs> over what these central bankers do any day. But, uh, but uh, the, thing, the thing is, that event is over. It, it and is. So,
1: and so is the stress test thing, which I remember, I remember uh, Janet Yellen telling Congress, you know, some of the members of Congress asked, well, what do the banks have to do to pass the stress test? And she said, well, we can't tell them how much capital they need to put aside. That's not a test if we tell you the answer, which of course is silly. It would be perfectly all right for them to say, we need, you need 20% set aside or you need 15%. By leaving it ambiguous about whether you're going to pass the stress test or not, by not telling them what to aim for, they over-reserve because no one wanted to go to prison or get shut down or have the regulators take over. So the money stays in the vault. Let me say it a, a Boyer way. If, if, sure. if inflation is too much money, chasing too few goods. So that the increase in the supply of circulating money is what causes inflation. That's the simple answer. And so a bunch of our friends said we're going to have super high inflation because the Fed quadrupled its balance sheet. And you and I didn't say that. Because in order to be inflationary, it has to circulate. Um, It can't, if it's locked in the bank vaults, if it's not in the consumer markets it doesn't it's not inflationary and not only that but in order to be domestic inflation it has to circulate domestically so if foreigners hoard dollars as as counterparties if they hold a huge amount of dollar reserves in the euro dollar market that's not very inflationary here domestically it's got to come back home or if banks hoard it in their in their vaults that's not inflationary but you're saying I think you're saying in terms of bank regulation, we're past that hyper hoarding. And I would suggest that maybe in terms of um, holding dollars overseas, that we might be past a hyper hoarding of dollars overseas, too, that the world might be losing a little confidence in the dollar so that some of those dollars might be coming back.
2: What do you think about that? Well, certainly uh, they don't seem to have the appetite for uh, U.S. government bonds that they had a few years ago. We'll see how that unfolds if Congress passes these crazy spending bills of uh, President Biden, and they have to figure out how to finance them. Uh, That's when uh, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. But in terms of of, uh, uh, the bank hoarding, uh, that's a nice way to put it, yes. And so now the banks want to lend. And at the same time, you have this massive liquidity in the world and that's why and, and you have interest rates which are negative, which has never happened before in history. And you have these anomalies in the marketplace. Why in the world would an Italian 10-year bond have a lower yield than an American 10-year bond? It makes no sense at all. So you have these massive distortions out there. You have literally trillions of dollars of, of bonds being bought, uh, subpar bonds, junk bonds, of uh, companies, not uh, companies that, as Michael Milken did back in the day, that uh, were thought to have prospects in the future. They had a low credit rating today, but uh, people thought they had a great future, so therefore you uh, would buy the bonds and get a juicy yield uh, while while waiting. Right. Uh, this time, a lot of companies that are on the edge are able to uh, get uh, mountains, mountains of money at very, very low rates. So again, this is a misallocation of capital, hmm. So you put this massive amount of liquidity out there, people trying to put it to work, and once we get over the, uh, we finally recover from the distortions of the pandemic, then I think uh, we're gonna see some real problems out there as uh, the water recedes, so to speak, and a lot of these companies are not gonna make it, and uh, somehow it's gonna start to unravel. And so- So, so uh, has, the, has the distortion of the pandemic, um,
1: it, you know created such a low baseline of one year ago that the current year over year inflation numbers might be exaggerating i mean part of this is cyclical right i'm uh, I, I, we i think we both agree i think we're both concerned about inflation but i think we both acknowledge that one of the things that's going on is a little math thing where if your base is really low is is artificially low because you shut down the economy that you're going to get year over year changes that might not reflect you know, the pure reality of inflationary policies might inf- uh, also reflect that distortion, right? So, it, in some cases, that's made the hawks a little too bold, you know, in in their feeling that see, we've proven right already. Uh, we, they they don't know that,
2: right? Yes, and then you get into crazy things like uh, cost push inflation, labor induced inflation, all that kind of stuff. And uh, hmm. you know, after World War One and World War Two especially after World War II, you had major disruptions in an economy that was totally geared to producing weapons (laughs) uh, to to, to save civilization. And after the war, it took uh, two or three years to uh, uh, go back to a truly civilian economy with a much uh, fraction of the defense forces we had before uh, before the end of the war. And uh, during that period of time, you saw the cost of living seemingly rise up. Well, why? Because during the war they had rationing, so you couldn't buy stuff even if you had the money, and also uh, there was uh, the, the 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 production was not there. You know, we we couldn't buy cars. We were making tanks and helicopters. I yes. mean, uh, tanks and airplanes and uh, armored carrier, armored vehicles and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so after the war, it looked like there was inflation, but it wasn't inflation. The dollar was fairly stable; Mm. Uh, it was readjusting. And uh, so uh, that's the kind of thing we're seeing after the pandemic. Uh, And I think we kind of underestimated the distortions because we live—we live in a global economy, and what it did to other nations was, uh, uh, in many respects, as severe, more severe. Than what we went so we might have here.
1: underestimated the supply chain disruptions. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. World War II because I've been arguing that, the, that this recession, depression, whatever we went through, is unlike anything that we've had in my lifetime or your lifetime. That the only analogy I can find is the rationing, not a perfect analogy, but the rationing regimes in World War II where people were essentially forbidden, demand was outlawed right so when when you have the the outlawing of demand you're just you're not allowed to buy it right or you or, um when you have the outlawing of dem, of demand you get completely different dynamics than when you have other well, i mean almost all our recessions are supply side recessions you know government messes something up creates a bubble raises taxes and we shrink production but in this case we essentially you know, ordered people not to consume. It was
2: it was rationing across the across the. So the analogy. and forced by uh, price controls and wage controls. Yes, and the wage controls, since uh, a big chunk of the labor force was uh, going off to Europe and the Pacific, uh, taken out of the civilian economy, uh, you had uh, companies wanting to pay existing workers more uh, to try to get uh, meet a labor shortage. She had a lot of women go on the labor force. But so that's how you got the rise in a big way of company paid health care plans. Right. Uh, And we have a, there's another, another similarity. We
1: have a wage shortage now, or excuse me, a labor shortage now Created by the government paying people not to work. So yes. so I, I I think you're really onto something. I'm sure you're thrilled to hear that. I, I think that uh, with, with the analogy of the price dynamics after World War II, because that's the most analogous to what we went through. And a lot of those price increases weren't really inflation in the classic sense. They were bounce backs from various distortions.
2: Yes. Right. And uh, and so uh, what you see today is a confluence of both. Now, the Fed has weakened the dollar somewhat in the last couple of years. And you saw it in the gold price, which was gone from roughly twelve hundred to eighteen hundred dollars an ounce. Uh, not good, but not bad. And uh, so you have a little bit of the mix of uh, of uh, inflation. But the key thing is, where where is the Fed going from here? Right. And uh, yeah, after and World War their- II,
1: we rolled into Bretton Woods. We do not seem to be rolling into a Bretton
2: Woods kind of mentality right now, quite to the contrary. Yeah, in Bretton Woods, uh, we fixed the dollar to gold, $35 an ounce, and every currency was tied to the dollar. So every currency, major uh, currency, was in effect on a gold standard sort of once removed, but it was still a a, a standard uh, fixed by gold. Uh, That is uh, using gold as a metric of value Mm -hmm. that uh, you wanted to keep the – how do you keep a currency stable in value? Well, gold's the best uh, proxy we have on Earth. Not perfect, but the best one we have, better than anything else. And several thousand years of experience so far have proven it. And maybe tomorrow somebody will figure out how to make globs of gold in a laboratory. But so far, uh, they haven't been able to do that. So uh, you might, in modern modern parlance, uh, no one's figured out how to hack gold yet, as they do seem to do everything else. uh, Isaac Newton tried. the like, right? And they've never, for years, they kept trying which, right. by the way, helped lead to the rise of Western science, that kind of experimentation. Hmm. But anyway, but anyway, the Fed not understanding inflation, the danger is, given the extraordinary conditions, they could end up lurching into it, and especially given the massive distortions since 2008 that have held back economies here and around the world, which is one reason why I think we've had some of the political uh, craziness, uh, because people have not seen a, a, a vibrant economy uh, free of uh, distortions, so the kind of economy we experienced after the early 1980s. Uh, a lot of young people uh, think it's just one crisis after another, and therefore it must be capitalism, mm. capitalists who, who, who are the cause of it. You know, Jeff Bezos, we couldn't have existed without uh, Amazon during the sh- lockdowns. Uh, but uh, by golly, uh, he, he, he's a villain. You know, uh, they're comparing him to Lex Luthor. Uh, and it's uh, the hair. It's the you know the hair thing. Yeah, and so they uh, they don't want him to come down from space when he goes up in his (laughs) rocket ship. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's not just, by the way, a little side tour here, it's not just the Democrats anymore. Um, So I'm going to, you know, put you a little, maybe this is an uncomfortable position, I hope not. I'm very concerned about the rise of a default knee-jerk anti-corporation, anti-business populist impulse among Republicans now. I mean, I, you can almost always count on the Democrats, at least. I mean, you had a Clinton and JFK once in a while. But generally, you could count on Democrats to kick, kick corporations. They're, they're bad. They're capitalists. But now, you know, like Marco Rubio, some others, there seems to be a, a kind of a similar attitude in the Republican Party. I are mean, you seeing that? Or is it my imagination?
2: And is, are you concerned about it? Well, it's really a reaction to what you might call big tech. And uh, here is where uh, the leaders of those tech companies have behaved, I think, extremely irresponsibly. Regardless of what the law books say, you must have at least the passive acceptance of the public to exist. And in the 1800s, for example, the railroads gradually were seen having a public be damned attitude, uh, a the farmers, not all of them did it, but uh, they got a bad reputation which led to the government to create the first independent agency, the, what they called then the Interstate Commerce Commission, regulating rail rates, which ended up uh, screwing up the industry to the point where uh, by the, the late 70s, it had all gone bankrupt. Hmm. Then they deregulated, started, by the way, under Jimmy Carter, amazingly. Yeah. And uh, we now have the greatest freight system in the world. Everyone focuses on uh, bullet trains, but the real purpose of railroads is moving freight these days. And we do it better than anyone else in the world, more efficiently than anyone else in the world. But those leaders of those companies going out of their way to kick sand in the face, yes. to kick the shins right. of people of the center right is, is, is just asking for trouble. I and agree. They are, it's irresponsible. They, as, it's as, irresponsible to, the, to their companies, to their shareholders ultimately, and to the country, because you are going to get some, uh, something bad uh, uh, done. And uh, they talk about uh, doing away with Section 230. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, you got to be very careful when you do those things. The law of unintended consequences has not, uh, not been repealed. And you have uh, Clarence Thomas and others saying these companies are common carriers, hmm. uh, which means they should post anything and everything that's not illegal. Well, we have to be careful. That doesn't lead to another version of the fairness doctrine, which yep. was used to uh, keep uh, conservative views off the air. Uh, we never would have had Rush Limbaugh if, if we hadn't had uh, repealed the fairness, so-called fairness doctrine. What are, what so, th- uh, so like with a- uh, with the Republicans, I think, uh, we, we, and I've certainly tried my part to hammer home to these people, you are uh, being very destructive, and fortunately. And this is something when that, you say uh, these
1: people, you mean the, the big tech CEOs or the Republicans? Yeah, yeah, Republicans. yeah right. No, the, right.
2: The, the big tech CEOs. Right. And I always cite the example of the old AT&T, you know, the back in the days when Ma Bell was a legal monopoly in this country because they thought telephony was a, na- a natural monopoly. <laughs> and AT&T, before the early 1980s, when it was broken up, went out of its way to make everyone happy. Yes. The service was the best in the world. They didn't care what a, they were going to make sure you had good service, keep everyone happy. Every newspaper, Jerry, radio station, magazine and TV station had ads from Ma Bell, from mm. AT&T. They covered all their bases. Trying to win our trust back. And when uh, candidates ran for office, at and would immediately be in there and put in the phones. If you uh, campaign failed and didn't pay your bill, they didn't try to put you in jail. So AT&T went out of its way to keep everyone happy. That's what these people should do. When you reach a certain size, you better try to, in a positive way, to uh, make sure you're, uh, you're, you're not uh, undermining uh, public acceptance of your existence and size.
1: Well, for the past couple of months, I've, I've done a little project, which is, as you know, I work for an institutional shareholder. Um, I've been going, attending, you know, virtually the annual meetings of the companies that are in the indices that I help design and maintain. In other words, I'm trying to be a citizen. I'm, I don't, instead of complaining about these companies, I'm using the authority that I have, right? And I've been talking to some of these technology companies and pointing out to them exactly what you're saying, which is, do you understand that you had one party that you had a decent relationship with in, in Washington and you have almost destroyed that relationship? You, you think that going against ESG or going against wokeism is managing risk? no cancel culture is now probably your biggest source of political risk. You're going to have no friends left in D.C., so be neutral. Some of them are listening. A lot of these conversations are off the record, so I can't say more. Some of them are listening. Some of them aren't. They're just acting like they're privately held companies rather than publicly traded and pursuing their own political agenda. But in the end, they're going to end up being treated like utilities if they keep abusing their power. That, on the other hand, is no excuse for conservatives to take a need- jerk, anti-corporate. The problem is not the corporation. These companies are marvels of innovation. The problem is the misuse of shareholder resources pursuing their own political agenda. But but Apple is a marvelously productive company, even when they do this stupid stuff. So I still love the idea of, the, of a technology corporation and see it as a great blessing to mankind. I just don't want them to do the stupid thing of making enemies unnecessarily.
2: And uh, fortunately and our friend George Gilder will uh, reassure you on this too, is instead of trying to destroy these companies, what we should be doing is destroying the barriers where new technologies and new ways of doing things emerge. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done there, starting with the capital gains tax, which Mm. if you can't eliminate you should certainly knock it down to a fraction of what it is today and uh, may, may, uh, doing these stupid regulations is stand in the way of the creation of small businesses. Small business, new new business creation in this, in this country dropped after the 1990s. Uh, Carl Schramm and others have written on it. Hmm. He found that we went from roughly 800,000 startups a year down to four or 500,000. It started to improve in the Trump years. And now uh, COVID has uh, slammed it again and the Biden administration is doing its best to make sure uh, the, that environment uh, doesn't get uh, recreated for small businesses. Hmm. But you do that and some of the huge technological changes are coming. Uh, put these companies in their place.
1: Is blockchain, and, you think, the, the, the main thing that's coming to put these companies block, in their blockchain place? Blockchain
2: could do it. Some okay. variation of artificial intelligence. And also, uh, you're starting to see signs that for the first time in a long time, and this is where you need a benign environment uh, the, the legacy industries will be helped by, by uh, high tech, i.e., why today, despite the improvement in aircraft, does it take about as much time to go from, say, New York to Los Angeles and back again as it did 40 years ago? What happened to supersonic technology? Well, it's been there, but it just has never been developed and refined. Well, that's going to change now. And so we're going to start to see changes in uh, physical things, as uh, Peter Thiel likes to say, atoms and not just bytes. Uh, but that won't uh, really flourish if we uh, put up uh, stupid barriers and have uh, crazy uh, new entitlements, not crazy, but uh, well-meant, but entitlements that are going to uh, make it impossible or certainly hinder this kind of innovation that will put these companies in their place. And just to quickly go through, I'm old enough to remember when GM was the big bad uh, industrial company who could take over the whole US auto industry. Uh, Ford and crisis uh, survived at the sufferance of GM for antitrust purposes. Well, we saw where that led. IBM was the big bad high tech company. By the early 90s, had one foot back in the corporate graveyard driving company today, but not the fearsome giant it was uh, 35 years ago. And Walmart, remember when that was the big baddie? Then along comes Amazon. Suddenly, Walmart is the David against the Goliath of Amazon. <laughs> uh-huh. And so on and on it goes. So uh, yeah, you got to go against uh, misbehavior. That's fine. But uh, bigness in and of itself is bad. And what I, what what the Biden people want to move away from is anti, one, one of the things that arose about any trust, which is misbegotten anyway, the way they do it. But they did realize that if a company was reducing prices, then its size wasn't a bad thing. Hmm. Uh, if consumers weren't being demonstrably hurt uh, because monopolies were always supposed to be they take over and then they jack up the prices. So if that's not happening, you don't uh, lose lose sleep over it. But now they're saying, oh, but it has social consequences. And it's in this predatory consequence. pricing now, right? Predatory, yeah. Yeah, yeah predatory. And so uh Not no, that the but,
1: consumers it ain't, you know.
2: <laughs> they, they they just don't like you. They yeah. they want to control you. Yes.
1: Interesting. I and I guess now that the David I mean the David's stone is the little wafer of silicon, um, you know, that fells the Goliath. And I do wonder if the next stone is a little block a little block, a little block. I mean, I don't know. That's what our friend George Gilder thinks, and he knows Ten thousand times as much about this stuff as I do. I certainly, uh, I certainly hope he's right. Let's let's come back to the Fed now. Um, Vernon, I told Vernon Smith that we'd be doing this interview today. Vernon won the Nobel two thousand two. Yes, and he brought up an interesting point, which is um, that he wanted me to bring up the Fed. Basically, last week said, well, we're gonna, we're probably not gonna be buying as many mortgages, but we're gonna be buying as many treasuries. And so, what he's raising this fascinating issue, which is. If the central bank hyperfunds government, lowering the cap- cost of capital to zero, but doesn't likewise hyperfund the private sector, we don't, I don't want them to hyperfund anything, but if they do that, it's essentially a form of nationalization in that it shifts economic resources from the private to the public sector with not, without actually having to nationalize anything or seize anything or regulate it just. It just reallocates the capital almost quietly and that that's a de facto deprivatization and portends bad things for the future. What do you think about Professor Smith's theory on this? Well,
2: one, when you have a misbehaving Fed combined with a government determined to misbehave economically in terms of uh, taxation, regulation, and the like, spending and the like, then uh, you destroy capital. You destroy private capital. Remember, most wealth is the value of assets. It's not cash sitting in under your bed or in a bank vault. It's asset value. So if you have a hostile environment for productive uh, creation of uh, assets, guess what happens? Wealth disappears. Poof, like a puff of smoke. And uh, I guess I shouldn't use that analogy anymore since uh, smoking is bad. But anyway, uh, the the, the fact of the matter is you destroy capital. puff of vape. Vape. It's, it's vape. Well, the government hates vaping, too, oh, that's true. That's strangely true. enough. Another subject <laughs> for another time. Strange. But uh, but uh, so it destroys capital, and it destroys the creation of capital. So uh, Smith is, uh, Vern Smith is right. And uh, one of the things that socialists learned a long time ago is, unlike what they thought after World War II in Britain, that you nationalize all the means of production, it's far better and uh, cleverer to put in regulations and other measures where your survival depends on the sufferance of politicians. And therefore you get the blame when things go wrong because the politicians, Oh, we're, 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 not in charge. It's those evil companies that are in charge. And at the same time, you in effect uh, control the economy. And so, uh, that's why, uh, what, what, what the far left is doing, they want, uh, they they want power more than they do prosperity hmm. and uh that's why uh, these measures which are demonstrably anti growth like the raising the capital gains tax right out We know they won't, they won't even, they, we won't get new revenues on we that we lose revenue right so here they to re- enact a tax that's going to lose revenue when they say oh we desperately need new revenue they're doing that as a matter of control and this thing of increasing the size of the IRS adding 80,000 new agents and uh Then uh, leaking those tax returns and uh, showing, uh, you know, in one sense, they showed absolute economic illiteracy when they took those tax returns and then took Forbes magazine's estimates, estimates of their wealth and concluded they weren't paying enough tax. I mean, talk about mixing apples and oranges and God knows Kiwis or whatever.
1: Right. Net uh, net they, wealth is not the same as income. You tax income, right? So yeah. you, but, the base but, should but, not but, be but net that, worth. But
2: that, but that was, uh, they knew what they were doing. They wanted to uh, create a an environment where people would say, you yeah, know, we better tax more, i.e. tax, the next step is taxing wealth. Hmm. And the thing about I taxing see. wealth is it's not just uh, seizing what you might own, it's monitoring and examining everything you do. One of the things the IRS now wants to do, it's in the bill, is uh, have you uh, know what your bank flows of cash in and out, not just your uh, income statements, but the flows of money in and out of all your financial accounts. And uh, then the next thing you wanna know is what are your assets? Do you have a piece of art hidden somewhere? It's uh, all about control in a way that George Orwell couldn't have even imagined.
1: Didn't we do a wealth tax in 37? Uh, We tried to, and then um, we tried to pack the court, and then it passed in 38. And our friend Amity talked about the depression within the depression when we got the wealth tax. I mean, that's
2: incredibly destructive of value for everybody. It is, and uh, countries that try it end up uh, realizing it doesn't work. But these people don't care if it doesn't work in a narrow sense. This is, again, about control knowing what you're doing. If you want to do something, you have to have their permission. Mm. And so it's, it's a very malignant thing. Uh, they're not interested in uh, recovery. They're interested in more power for themselves. And so it's a, any means to do it.
1: So ruling class, there's a Nietzschean will to power, but their ability to do that is limited by our embrace or not embrace of the vice of envy. In other words, our envy can be exploited by them for their power. If we're if we don't have larceny in our heart, then they can't you know they can't wave the wealth tax in front of us to you know to kind of get at the the evil rich men. It won't work. So we as a people have to abandon I guess I'm really moving towards something else. Can we avoid the sort of things that you and I are concerned about without some kind of genuine cultural, spiritual, moral renewal? Um, civil or whatever in our country that makes us not so vulnerable to manipulation by these elites that they you're using cynically but we're giving into because you can't cheat an honest man right so you know don't we have to change as a nation in order to resist what the, what our leaders are trying to do
2: well we have to uh, uh go about uh changing uh fighting the narrative and letting uh, not letting them have a free pass as a uh, as they've always done, and saying, well, we may mess things up, but our hearts are in the right places. We're trying to help the people and uh, learn to fight back in big ways and small. And uh, one of the things, and that government can't do that. Uh, This is something that has to be done uh, by we, the people. In closing, a classic case is uh, liquor. Uh, Between the Revolutionary War and the 1820s in this country, we had a massive increase in liquor consumption. And while it's uh, comedic to see, uh, you know, people uh, uh, drunk at, uh, at noontime, stumbling over each other, had very predictably evil social consequences. And there rose up uh, a public uh, health movement. This was the first public health campaign in this country was drink less. And the theme was a self-governing nation must have self-governing people. Yes, And uh, this before the government got involved, which led to prohibition and all sorts of things. But this this was ministers and people saying, we, we, we got to do something about this. And liquor consumption dropped. And even today, per capita, we're way off of what we were in the 1820s, 1830s. But that was a movement of the people Yes, saying, uh, this is not good for us. And uh, we're going to do something uh, about it, not through coercion. Through changing mores and what's acceptable and not acceptable. Changing we see the heart, this...
1: temperance, or a spiritual yeah.
2: renewal. Yeah. The, yeah. Steve, the
1: very first time I heard that story is when I asked you to come here to Pittsburgh to speak in 1997 and 1998. And you told that. And it's still the truth. We're still waiting for self governance. That's in, in the end, we have to be a self governing people. No, otherwise, the state grows in In reaction to our unwillingness and inability to govern ourselves do you, do you agree with that
2: uh yes, and uh, the thing that has to be brought across and this is where high tech can be our friend is that uh it's liberating it's liberating to be able to uh, have uh, devices now that brings the whole world to your fingertips and uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember card catalogs. And uh, the laborious way you had to look up information and encyclopedias, which always stood in the bookshelf formidably there. Now, boom, 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 you, ha- you, you have it. And uh, so uh, we have to emphasize this kind of liberation. These instruments are to liberate you mm. to uh, have have a richer journey in life. And uh, another thing we have to get across is, is that life doesn't go in a straight line. And uh, there are going to be failures along the way. There are going to be setbacks along the way. But in a free society, you can get up, learn, and move ahead and do better. Fitzgerald was – F. Scott Fitzgerald was wrong. Uh, He said there are no second acts. Well, in one sense, he's right. There are hundreds of acts if you uh, seize the opportunities.
1: Well, speaking of self-governance, I promised you a hard out now – so I'm, I'm going to re- resist my temptation to ask any further questions and just say Steve Forbes from Forbes.com, Forbes magazine, and especially go and subscribe now. What's ahead? I never miss this short podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. I
2: really appreciate it. Jerry, thank you. Good fun. Thank you.
1: And thank you for the, whatever, 20 years of times in which you've been willing to come on the air and talk to me and my listeners about these issues. You've always been very generous, so Godspeed.
2: You bring a perspective that's much needed today. Thank you, my friend.
1: If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends.